as we begin to wind down this series about microchurch, I want to focus on motivating other people, because if we can't motivate people to do the thing that we're interested in, the vision that we have, we're not going to really get anywhere. And so uh, we're going to spend two or three sessions talking about motivating. This session is entitled Motivating Key Leaders Toward Microchurch. Now, that's really what this whole thing has all been about. So in a way, that's a little bit redundant. But I, I, I want to focus on two or three things, because right now, uh, we're still coming out of the pandemic, and that's got everybody's attention. And so I want to talk about rising above the moment. We need to really consider that this whole business of uh, the new normal, how do we get back to where we were, or you know, all of the thoughts that we have coming out of the recent pandemic only pre prepare us for short-term survival. They're really not long-term strategies. Some of the stuff that we're going to pick up and that we have to do because of what the, the COVID thing did to us are going to be implemented long-term, but this is short-term thinking. We need to be thinking about a post-Christian world. What are we gonna do in a post-Christian world? Because that's what we live in. I recently talked to a friend who said that um, they're doing a, a, a house church and kind of growing it into a network of micro churches. And they met a person who came for the first time. They didn't know who Jesus was and they have never ever opened a Bible. So in a sense, this is this individual is pre-Christian. So we're living in at least a post-Christian world, if not a pre-Christian world. And once we begin to think about this, then we start to set the stage for long-term success. And so as we get into this idea of longer-term thinking, we need to think about a longer history as we plan and prepare for our future. I wanna take you back to 1950. This is when I was a five-year-old boy, and 94% of the population of the United States self-identified as Christians. Now, probably a lot of them are cultural Christians, maybe not even going to church, but they called themselves Christians. 66% at that time self-identified as Protestants, with about 25% as Catholics, and 5% would have checked the little box on the U.S. Census that said none. So we're calling those people religious nuns. You fast forward 10 years to 1960, and almost nothing has changed. 94% are Christian, 67% now are Protestant, and the religious nuns category has dropped to 2%. 1970, still largely unchanged, 93% call themselves Christians, 65% call themselves Protestants, 3% call themselves religious nuns. Go all the way forward to 1990, and you find that 83% of the population have identified themselves as Christians. Now, this is 11% difference from 1950. Only 56%, 10% difference from 1950 call themselves Protestants. And now the religious nuns category is up to 9%. Go to the year 2000, it's still not changed that much, but we're losing ground. 82% are calling themselves Christians, 50 2% call themselves Protestants. And again, the religious nuns category has dropped just a little bit. It's only at 8%. 2010, though, we've dropped all the way to 74% Christians, 45% are calling themselves Protestants, and now 14% of the people call themselves none. Jump ahead to 2020, and now we're at 68% Christian, down from 94% in 1950. We're at 37% who identify as Protestants, and the religious nuns category has jumped 
from 5% in 1950 to 20% in 2020. So let me just give you the big picture all at once here. 1950, 94% call themselves Christians. 2020, only 68%. 1950, 66% of the population called themselves Protestants. 2020, only 37% of the population called themselves Protestants. 1950, 5% identify as religious nuns. And by 2020, we're looking at 20% who would check the nuns category on the U.S. Census box. This is really scary. We are losing ground. And what we really need to do is convince our key leaders of this. They need to see how bad things have gotten so that they can be concerned enough to want to make some changes. I want to just point out a couple things here. From 1966 to 1980, as you're looking at the chart, uh, that period of time included the Jesus movement. Not a whole lot of change happened in America because of this revival that drastically changed my life. In 1980, we saw the triggering of the megachurch movement, and it began to do damage. I believe that a whole lot of what we've lost is due to the fact that we're killing the small churches because people are transferring over to the larger churches, and that's not a really good thing. From 2000 to 2020, the rise of the nuns paralleled the largest drop in Christianity in American history. This is really, really a scary thing. And it gets more scary when you consider that coming out of the recent pandemic, about 20% of people are just not returning to church and, and many churches are closing. And so this is not really exciting stuff. As we begin to identify issues that are important to the people in our churches, we need to look at some apparently inevitable changes. These things are going to happen. You know, we're talking about change. When we talk about motivating people, we're always talking about getting them ready to where they want to change. But here are some changes that are going to come your way, whether you like it or not. First is that many more churches are going to die in the next 24 months. A whole lot already have. Uh, we're finding that a lot of places that would rent to churches before, public schools, you know, community centers, things like that, are simply just not willing to do it because they're still fearful of a resurgence of the pandemic. New churches, we're finding, are going to be smaller and more neighborhood focused. Now, microchurches are coming your way. Uh, the, the, the thing that I get the most excitement over on my blog, anytime I write anything, uh, whenever we do a webinar with Exponential, it's always the microchurch thing that really gets important to people. I think that pastors are waking up to realize that I don't have to live a life of poverty. I can do a microchurch and I can multiply microchurches. I can probably reach more people and I can have a career. I can make some money and take care of my family. Social distancing and millennial preferences dictate that thriving churches are going to offer more services but smaller services. Now, social distancing, you can't get as many people in the auditorium. Millennial thinking, we want to be friends with people. We don't want to just be spectators. And so it's going to dictate that, that a, a, a church becomes normal to have three to five services on a weekend. Most congregations are going to continue with or add online worship. I mean, this is something that we've picked up largely in the pandemic. Some are going to do this in an extremely professional way. The big boys are going to make a big show out of it. Others on the other end of the spectrum are going to make it into something a little bit more intimate, a little more Q&A, a little talk back and forth. And uh, friends are, are, you know, friendships are being built 
in this kind of a situation. Nearly every church is going to receive offerings online, but the churches that are really smart are going to figure out that the older people in your congregation who tend to give the most money don't do online giving or don't do it very well. You're either going to have to train them to do it, perhaps go to their home and train them to do it, or you're going to have to provide offering envelopes. I think mail-in envelopes are a real treasure. We did that always. We'd find people that were on a business trip to New York, they'd mail in their tithe. They're on a vacation in Tahiti, they mail in their tithe, whatever, they would mail in their tithe. It's something that you need to consider. Many churches are going to struggle financially, uh, but we have noticed that the churches that have invested the most of their resources, their time, their money, their effort, into the community outside the church. These are the churches that have attracted money financially from their own donors, but also from people in the community that have heard what they're doing and have decided to invest in the church. Pretty interesting thing that came out of the pandemic. Um, that was a, a real blessing in the middle of the real tragedy. And then we're going to see a plethora of um, church adoption and shared campuses. I and mean, we're, we're looking at a situation where buildings are just going to become more scarce. Uh, I've talked before about churches that are deciding to die. We're going to close the door and we're going to give our campus away to another church. I think we need to be thinking, if I have a campus, how can I share that with other people? So these things are going to happen. This is the change that's coming up on the church, and it's going to be there whether we want it to be there or not. So the next thing that I want you to consider is how you present change to your key leaders. Now I'm talking about key leaders here. I'm not talking about the whole congregation. Eventually it has to spin out to them, but I'm talking about those people who have been listening to you preach. They've been listening to you envision what could be. And now they're wrestling with this thing. Do we want to change? Do we not want to change? We'll get into that in the next session quite a bit. But I want to just give you a metaphor from scripture that I think is really important uh, because I think everything that we do has to be rooted and grounded in the scripture or our people are just not going to buy it. You know, it just becomes another business plan or business proposal. And so I want to use the promised land as a biblical metaphor. And I want to think about uh, four different characteristics here. First, in Egypt, multiplication turned into genocide. Second, in Canaan, God regulated the pace of occupation. Third, the giants had to be driven out of the land. And fourth, the false gods could not be tolerated. So let's just talk about that and how this applies to you and to your own congregation. I want us to look at parallels. First, Egypt, where multiplication, that was God's plan for the people of Israel, turned to genocide. Here's the parallels that I see. The Jerusalem church. It, 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 it grew, it refused to multiply, uh, Acts 8 comes along, and, and eventually the Jerusalem church just is not a factor in the world. The church in Syria and Antioch from there on out becomes a factor. The church in what we would call Turkey today becomes a major factor. Multiplication did happen, but it certainly did not happen in Jerusalem. And the parallel to that is the decline of the U.S. church along with the rise of the megachurch. You know, George Barna years ago, I may have referenced this before, wrote a book, We Have Seen the Death of the Church in Los Angeles County. And he identified my church, the one I pastored, as one of the culprits. And what he said was that small churches have limited resources, and so they're highly relational, and they evangelize very well. 
but the members end up going to events sponsored by the larger churches, decide, oh, this is better than that little church that I'm a part of. I'm going to stay here. And what he said is consider it as a, as a tree. And the part of the tree that's above ground looks like the mega church. The part of the tree that's below ground looks like the tiny church or even the micro church. And, and what he said was that the big churches are drying up the roots of the small churches, killing them, and we're losing numbers. This was in 1982 or 1983 that he made this prophecy, and certainly it's what came about uh, very, very quickly within a couple of decades. The chart that we showed earlier certainly shows that. We need to look at Canaan as a metaphor, specifically the way that God regulated uh, the pace at which the people were able to conquer the land. He actually says in Deuteronomy, one of my favorite passages of scripture, when I get impatient about things, God reminds me of this one, that he told the people, I, I regulated the pace. I wouldn't let you conquer the land too quickly because if you conquered the land and you drove out the people who controlled it, now you're going to have this land that's occupied by wild animals and, uh, you know, nature is going to take over the, the weeds and the vines and whatever, and you're not going to really be able to benefit from the land. So God slowed things down a little bit. And I think that's important for us to remember as we're talking about change and the pace of change and sometimes the setbacks that we feel, uh, sometimes those things are the things that God actually meant to, to, to bless us down the, the road. The parallels that I see to this are in, of course, in Acts, the, the perhaps slower pace of growth that you see. I mean, Acts chapter two, good night, overnight, there's 3000 people added to the church. A couple chapters later, it's huge. But then as it gets into the hinterland, it takes time. It it takes a micro form. And this, of course, is the parallel to us today is the emergence of the micro church and and the church multiplication movement and all that's going on. It takes time. One of my friends is really frustrated because he's doing all the right things. He's he's making disciples. He's built a micro church. He's getting ready to multiply other micro churches. But he's feeling pressure to hurry the thing up and to you know get big in a hurry. Uh, we see all this launch large thing going on today. I think God wants us to slow down a little bit and make disciples because it's all about making disciples, make disciples who are capable of reproducing themselves and others. And we're going to see churches emerge from there. The third thing in this metaphor are the giants that had to be driven out of the land. And of course, the parallels are uh, the circumcision and our treasured traditions. If you look back into the book of Acts, the problem with the circumcision issue had to do with people who had become Christ followers who were still looking at the Jewish traditions, and they're the ones that were after Paul's blood. There's a lot of persecution that came from the secular world, a lot of persecution from the pagan world, but the primary persecution, the thing that got Paul his free trip to Rome, was the Judaizers in Jerusalem Judaizers referring to believers in Jesus Christ who are Judaizing Christianity. And then as we get into the parallel in our world, it's our traditions. It's the way that we've always done things. It's our seminaries. It's the top-down kind of leadership. It's the rules and regulations. It's the bylaws. It's all those things that kind of conspire to say no to the advance of the gospel and know to whatever is innovative, whatever is fresh, whatever God is putting in people's hearts. Those are the things that we're going to have to deal with 
if we're going to really find our way into our long-term future and begin to think strategically. We've got to get behind this. And then the last deal here is the false gods and the gods that could not be tolerated as Israel went into the land of Canaan. They had to wipe out the gods. They had to wipe out the people who worshiped them. The parallel, of course, in the book of Acts are the pagan gods of the Roman Empire, uh, the gods that Paul encountered on um, Mars Hill in Athens. Uh, those gods were very real to the people who worshiped them. They probably were real in that they were demonic gods and they had to be dealt with. And the power of our God is greater than the power of those gods. Certainly, as we fast forward to today, the God that I see is, is this simple, simple statement, the way we've always done it. Sorry, Pastor, that's not the way we've always done it. Oh, hey, we've not done that before. No, that's not what we do here. Those gods have to be destroyed if we're going to find our future. And you need to really be thinking about the key leaders in your church because they're the gatekeepers. They're the ones that hold the, the you know, the yes or no, the yay or nay to whether we go forward into the future that God calls us to. And I'm specifically talking about making disciples who make disciples and building a microchurch network into the life of your congregation and a microchurch network that exceeds the life of your congregation in that it exists outside with a certain measure of autonomy. As we end this thing, I want to talk about contrasting what is with what could be. And I want you to think in these terms, and this is really kind of a homework assignment, something for you to do, to just, you know, sketch out on a piece of paper, what is that must change? You know, what changes are coming my way? What can I identify? Because this is going to give you credibility when you go to your people and you go, this is something we've been doing, or this is something we are doing, and we are going to be forced to change this, like it or not, changes coming our way. Because that sort of softens people up toward motivating them to the kind of change that we really want to get to. And that is, in light of everything I've been teaching you, everything from the scripture, you know, you as a pastor I'm talking about here, everything that you've laid out, then what could be if we would just choose for it to be? You know, I have a friend that uh, used to hang around with another friend of mine, and he said, I could never be with the guy that used to play golf a lot. And, 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 and this guy was like a denominational official. The other guy was a pastor. And the denominational guy said, I could never be around this guy. But, but he was going, what if? You know, what would happen if? What would happen if we did this? What would happen if we thought about that? What would happen if? And he said, the guy drove me nuts, but he moved me from stasis to activity. We got things done because of this guy and his, you know, what if question. Well, I'm kind of rephrasing that question. What could be if we chose to and enlist the things that you would like to see your people choose to do and perhaps then take your key leaders through this same exercise. We'll get back to this next time because we're going to talk about stakeholders. What do they have to give up in terms of change? What do they, how do they benefit in terms of change? Because this is a big part of motivating people from where they are to where you want them to be.